You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Happy New Year. We continue our time of worship. If you would turn to John 18 as we continue to set our hope on Jesus. One of the great benefits of these videos is it reminds you, reminds us, that our giving to Lottie Moon goes to real life people on the ground who've given their lives away because they believe, rightly believe, that the gospel is the only hope for this lost and dying world. And you continue to step up year after year. Thank you for your sacrificial giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You continue to pray, not just for Lakeview's offering, but for the International Mission Board because they have real goals and those goals require resources. Thank you, Adam, praise team, musicians for leading us in worship. And now we're in John 18. And for context, Jesus has prayed. He has finished his high priestly prayer. And you really could sum up the prayer starting in verse 25. So look with me in John 17, 25, as we approach John 18 this morning. Jesus closes his prayer in these words, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. By the way, that is the hope of the world, that he will continue to make known the name of the Father. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung, we set our hope on Jesus, and yet we realize that Setting our hope on Jesus is not an either-or proposition. It's something that we can be strengthened in, that we can grow in, like a muscle, like a dimmer switch. And I'm praying right now as we come to this passage that it would strengthen our capacity by faith to increasingly set our hope on Jesus. And Lord, for those here this morning who have never set their hope on Jesus, may today be the day they set their hope on the living Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1873, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, considered the the prince of preachers in in the Western church, was offered $25,000 by P.T. Barnum, yes, of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, to speak 25 times. That's $1,000 per lecture, not sermon, lecture, equivalent to $600,000 today. But he was offered this money to come and speak in the large tent at the traveling circus in the United States. P.T. Barnum did not see it as a ministry. He saw it as an opportunity to make money. At the time, Spurgeon was the most popular preacher in the world. 
And he was certainly very popular in the United States. His, his sermons were being published and, and sold. And, and Barnum recognized this money-making opportunity. He could pay Spurgeon that money and then still have, make a lot of money himself. And Spurgeon knew that. And even though Spurgeon had great financial needs for his many ministries, here's how he responded. If you were to multiply that offer by 100 times and then 100 times more, I should feel it as easy to decline as I do now. I am a minister of the gospel and have never lectured for money and do not intend to do so now. Now, where does such conviction come? Where does such high and holy principle, countercultural principles come in a man like that? Well, the answer goes all the way back to 174 years ago this very weekend. On January the 6th, 1850, 15-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon was walking to church as he always did, but he was not converted. He had been raised in the church. It was part of his custom. It was part of his culture. And so he was walking to church, but it was a very snowy day. It was, a, in fact, a snowstorm outside. And so he just diverted into a, a Methodist church, one that he'd never been in before. And there was a lay preacher preaching that morning, and he was filling in for the regular preacher, and he was not educated, and that was very clear. But he was preaching from Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved. And Spurgeon recounted that there weren't many people in that room, and so this lay preacher locked on 15-year-old Spurgeon. And he said, young man, in the middle of the sermon, you look very miserable. If I look at you in this sermon, I, I'm not doing that. All right? <laughs> and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon said, I saw it once the way of salvation. I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And in that moment, I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to him. Spurgeon began looking that day, and he kept on looking until his dying day. The fruit of that, a man of high character, 
gospel-formed, gospel-shaped character, a man of high conviction, and one of the most fruitful pulpits in the history of Christ church. Do you realize that in a very real sense, that is John's sole purpose? He doesn't give us a lot of commands to obey in his gospel. He gives us a Christ to look into. He gives us a Christ to behold. For the unbeliever, and there are some here this morning, unbeliever, look unto Christ and live this morning. And for those of you who are believers, most of you are, look unto Christ and have your hearts enlarged by the love of God. Behold his glory. Behold his majesty and beauty. Learn to love him more and love your neighbor more. That is the purpose of beholding the Christ. John 18 is no exception. John 18, 1 to 11, as we look at that this morning. And one of the things we're going to look at as we peer into Christ is that Christ as Lord has all authority, even when it looks like he's lost all control. And that's a word to all of us, no matter what our circumstances are, there may be times it appears life is out of control, and this passage reminds us, no, it's not. Christ the Lord has all authority and sovereignty, even in the midst of what appears to be chaos. And chaos is breaking out in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' life, and with his disciples. The first thing we see here is Jesus' authority, even over the place where he will be arrested. Look with me in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, what are these words? Well, his prayer to the Father and then the upper room discourse, John 13 to John 17. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, I want you to note, John uses the word garden here. He does not use the word Gethsemane. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and by the way, none of the gospels contradict themselves. They all have different purposes. They complement one another. John was the last gospel written. He knows what's already been written. He is complimenting all that has already been written. The other gospels focus on the place called Gethsemane. Here, John centers on the fact that it was a garden. The garden of Gethsemane never occurs in the scripture. We, we piece these together. The place called Gethsemane was a garden, and hence the garden of Gethsemane. But I believe, along with many exegetes in church history, that there is a reason John is centering on the fact that this was a garden. This is not, in my estimation, an arbitrary detail. He will even speak later about the garden uh, after he was raised from the grave. History began in a garden. Sin entered the world 
in a garden. Everything that's broken is a result of that sin entering the world in time and space through one couple, Adam and Eve. So sin entered the world in a garden. The first Adam disobeyed God in this garden and was cast out of that garden. But the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, describes him as the last Adam, was obedient even as he went into this garden. In the first garden, the human race was lost. And in this garden... The last Adam says, as we're going to look at in verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. History will end one day in a garden, Revelation 21 and 22. And in that garden, there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more temptation to sin. Amen? There will be no more mourning or sadness because of what this Adam, this last Adam is doing in this garden. And Jesus, by his authority over this place, even as he is being arrested, is teaching us that what he will accomplish, even at the hands of sinful men, will bring a reversal of what came on the world in that first garden. I think that's why John is reminding us this is a garden. But I want you to notice as well, it was the brook of Kidron that they crossed. That was also a place of special significance. There was a, a, a previous king named David. Jesus is of the line of David, who had crossed over the Kidron after he had been betrayed by his son, Absalom, and his most intimate counselor, Ahithophel. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. Now we have the greater David who's crossing over this Kidron, rejected by his people, currently being betrayed by one of his most intimate friends, Judas. But unlike David, who's who's uh, circumstances a result of his own sin. Jesus, the greater David, is doing this because of our sin. He is crossing that Kidron for us and our salvation. Now, between verse 1 and 2, John leaves a gap. It's not a, anything that is a problem in John. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But he lives a gap that's filled in by the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And from them, we learn of Jesus' sense of horror as he anticipates what he's about to go through. His arrest, there will be six trials the brutality that he will experience, the hands of sinful men, and ultimately the cross. Matthew 26, 38, it says, my soul, Jesus says, is very sorrowful even to death. In Mark's account, Mark 14, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
John doesn't give us any of that. It's not because he doesn't know it. And he's certainly not trying to hide it. But he is writing a complimentary gospel that emphasizes truths that the other gospels don't emphasize. That's why we need all four gospels for a composite picture of all that's going on. And for sure, Jesus or John knew about Jesus' angst. Far back as chapter 12, verse 27, John had written Jesus saying, now is my soul troubled. But his goal here is not to stress the human weakness of Jesus, but his authority in the situation. That's what John is driving home. And this is important to you who is going through a trial right now. Jesus is in control of what looks out of control. And that is a universal truth for every believer. He is in control of everything that looks otherwise out of control. And it looks out of control at the present moment. Look with me in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him. Now, we have read about Judas betraying since we were babies, if you were raised in the church. You've never met anyone named Judas. But here's the reality. It's easy to lose sight of the pain. But perhaps you've been betrayed. Well, the betrayal of an intimate is about the most painful thing you can face on the planet. And Jesus, though he was not fallen, though he was not a sinner, was fully human. And so the pain would have been devastating. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met with his disciples there. This is an important detail. Back in the upper room, Jesus, who knew that Judas was going to betray him, said this to him as he dismissed him from the room. He said, what you do, do quickly. What you do, do quickly. John 13, 27. Judas left the room, and Jesus knew that Judas was going to the authorities. And it's only here in John, the Gospel of John, that we learn that this was a, the place that he frequented with his disciples. He would go there with his disciples and, and they would worship and they would, they would sing and, and they would pray. They would commune with God. So Judas knew where to find him. Again, Jesus' authority over the place. Jesus went there not to hide. He went there to be found. Jesus' authority over the place where he was going to be arrested. It brings us to the next part of this passage. His authority over people. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured, that is secured, 
obtained a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, weapons. So the force that Judas led to the garden joined basically three divided factions, but they all had a common enemy. It's kind of like when the United States allied with Russia during World War II. Two completely different factions opposed to one another, but they had a, a common enemy. The band of soldiers here was a, was a Roman cohort. It was a tenth of a legion. A legion was made up somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 men. And so this cohort, a tenth of a legion, would have been somewhere between 300 to 600 men. Now notice again, they're carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. So, and then you add to the fact that there are officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees who were all there. It is estimated that there were up to a thousand men who come to arrest Jesus. It would be like this room full of men coming with weapons and torches and lanterns. It would have been pretty intimidating, but not for the one who has all authority. I love what it says in verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he knew what was about to happen. Listen, if you knew this afternoon you were going to hit your thumb with a hammer, you wouldn't pick up a hammer. I wouldn't. He knew what was going to happen to him. He went to the place where he knew it was going to happen. And he said to them, whom do you seek? I mean, Judas knows there's no reason for anybody to have a weapon. He spent three years with Jesus. He was anything but violent. He was love incarnate. I think that's the question Jesus is asking. Who are you seeking with this mass throng of soldiers with weapons and torches and lanterns? Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, what we see clearly here is it appears that the soldiers, the Pharisees, and all of these various groups, chief priests, officers from the chief priests, are the ones in charge. They're the ones who have the authority. It appears that Judas has a lot of power here. And John is communicating to us, don't be deceived by your eyes here. Jesus is the one who has all authority. We saw this as early as chapter 10 in verse 17 when Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And his authority is in even more clearly seen in how he responds to their response to his question. He says, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds, I am he. Now, I wish the English translators didn't do this, but they do. And they're doing it for readability. But the word he there is not in the original language. Literally, he says, I am. I am. Ego eimi. I am. We have seen this time and time again in the Gospel of John. There are seven times Jesus says, I am, and then adds a predicate. I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the true vine. Jesus is the great I am. As he stood before the Pharisees in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they knew what he was saying. He is identifying as the God of the burning bush. When Moses asked God, what is your name? As God had commissioned Moses, he says, I am, I am. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. And here we see Jesus is taking the divine name upon himself. And Judas had heard that time and time again. He had heard it and he had seen the works proving Jesus' deity. He had seen the sign miracles. He had heard the word of Christ. He had spent three years with a man who never sinned but loved perfectly. Judas had a lot of accountability. And Judas's condition and his actions that flowed out of that condition serve as a warning to every complacent Christian. It's a warning to every Christian who is drifting. Now, let me make an important distinction here. There are those who've never confessed Christ. They are unbelievers. But in the church, okay, there are two kinds of professing Christians who were not in a healthy place and one that was never converted. First of all, there are backsliders. There are legitimate backsliders, all right? And then there are apostates. Apostates were never saved. First John 2 says they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they remained with us. But their going away showed that they never really belonged to us. They were apostates. But a backslider refers to a person who is still a part of the visible people of God. And this person has not abandoned the faith altogether, but is complacent. 
and is not in a healthy place. Even a document as robust as the Westminster Confession of Faith affirms the presence of backsliders. The the Westminster Confession of Faith obviously confirms the eternal security of a, a true believer and the perseverance of a true believer and the preserving grace of God for the true believer. But here's what the Westminster Confession affirms. It asserts that some true believers may through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their perseverance. What are the means of their perseverance? Bible study, prayer, community, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, baptism, the means of perseverance may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened, what a scary place, and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgment upon themselves, temporal judgments. This is a backslider who's truly a believer but has drifted and God loves you too much to allow you to remain in that place. He will discipline you painfully to bring you back to the fold. That's the backslider. Judas was not a backslider. He was an apostate. An apostate is one who once belonged to the visible people of God, but has now made shipwreck of their faith and have been handed over to Satan. That person did not lose his or her salvation. They were never saved, but they played the game for a time. But here's my point in bringing the apostate and the backslider up. It's hard to distinguish the two when that person is in the process of turning away from the Lord. It's hard to distinguish whether you are just a backslider who will be under the discipline of God or you're an apostate under the judgment of God. And so Judas is a warning. He's a warning to the backslider who is still in a recoverable condition. Come back to Christ. Repent of your sins, lest you be hardened beyond repentance. That's where Judas was. But even with this apostate, Jesus has all authority. Notice when Jesus said, I am revealing his deity. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The only ones you see in Scripture being slain like this 
and falling back out of control are those who come to kill him. And they fell back to the ground. I think John wants us to see that if Jesus could drive up to a thousand enemy soldiers to the ground by the mere declaration, revelation of his deity, there is nothing that could hinder him from escaping the cross if he so desired as well. If this was the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his state of humiliation, how much more will it be in the day of his exaltation when he comes again to judge the living and the dead? This is a precursor of how it will be for those who refuse to bow the knee in this present age. F. W. Crewmaker in the 19th century wrote these powerful words. Their prostration in the dust before him points out to unbelievers the situation in which they will one day be found. The homage which they refuse to Jesus here below, he will in due time compel them to render him. The knee that would not bow to him in voluntary affection will at length be constrained to do so by the horrors of despair. Come to Christ while you still can. Learn from Judas' foolishness. That brings us to the next aspect or expression of his authority, Jesus' authority, even over prophecy. Notice in verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They didn't answer the first time. They fell on their back. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. And so this was a command by the one who was being arrested. This is a royal command, a command to protect his disciples from being arrested. You see, protocol was to arrest the insurrectionist and also to arrest his followers. And so when they came to arrest Jesus, they also came to arrest the other 11 disciples as well. And Jesus' response here summarizes Chapter 17, verse 12, that he prayed when he said to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which in turn refers back to John 6, verse 39. 
John 6, 39, Jesus had said, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That word lose is the word we see here in this passage. Of whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Back in chapter 6, it clearly refers to salvation. So here I think there's a double meaning. Certainly, he is protecting the disciples physically, that they would not be lost in in the sense of dying like he will die, at least at this moment. So how does protecting his disciples and their physical lives relate to their salvation? Well, for one, we're going to see this. Consider how weak their faith is at this point. That they're going to disperse when it gets hot in the kitchen. And, G- and Peter's going to deny Jesus for a time. So they have very weak faith, okay? What do you think they would have done if what's about to happen to Jesus had happened to them? Here's what they would have done. They would have renounced the faith. That's what they would have done. They would have apostatized. They did not have the faith to handle what Jesus was about to go through. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord, knows which trials to allow in our lives. Okay? And we can be sure as true believers that every trial and challenge to our faith is one that is divinely permitted and is for our ultimate good. And this was a trial he was not going to allow because they were not prepared for it. They would have turned their back on Christ. But there's another important point here that that is even more fundamental to our salvation. Jesus is essentially saying... Take me instead of them. Take me instead of them. Again, if you seek me, let these men go. He will die instead of them. And that brings us to the final point, most important point. Jesus' authority in his passion, that is his suffering, his his death. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. It's hard to say whether he was aiming for the head or for the ear. We don't know. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention this attack on the servant. Only John gives the names. He gives the name Peter, and he gives the name Malchus. Now, let me make a point here uh, to drive home the historical reliability of of John's gospel. Richard Bauckham, 
in 2006, came out with an important work, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he makes the point that when history was written in the first century, the way a historian was able to authenticate the history is that he got it from a living eyewitness. So if you read the Gospels, you can see bit characters who don't play a major role in the plot who are given names. Why would these names be given if it really doesn't matter as to understanding the plot? We're talking about eyewitnesses who are validating the story. So Mark was not an eyewitness. Peter looked over Mark's shoulder as he wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't give us the name of this servant. He doesn't give us Peter's name. Peter probably told him, not. don't mention my name here. Uh, <laughs> but John does. John's writing after Peter had died, by the way. If he had mentioned Peter's name while Peter was living, that probably would have caused even more heat for Peter. But now Peter has been dead for, for decades, as John writes this gospel. This is an eyewitness account, okay? And he mentions Malchus, and he mentions his, uh, Peter. But back to the plot here. Maybe you're holier than me, but when I read Peter pulled out his sword and cut the guy's ear, I want to high-five him. I really do. I want to fist bump him. I want to chest bump him. It's the kind of guy I want to play on my team. But, Peter, but Jesus rebukes that. What was wrong with Peter defending his Lord? Well, here's what's wrong with it, and this is important for us all to hear. Using carnal means to fight spiritual battles always causes damage. Always. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And even though we resonate with Peter, the reason we resonate is that's us. We are looking in the mirror. I, I've done that as a pastor. I've done that as a husband, as a father. I've done that as a neighbor, using carnal means to fight spiritual battles. I've seen it in every church I've been a part of. One of the things I haven't seen here by God's mercy is this tendency today, and I have not seen this at Lakeview, but I have seen it, where someone gets hurt in the church and they fight their battle on social media. God have mercy. I've seen pastors fight their battles on social media. That's of the same family of what Peter has done here. And Jesus was not impressed. What's behind that? Well, it reflects someone who at that moment is not being ruled by the Holy Spirit and is not trusting the Lord to fight his or her battles. That's why communion with God 
is always a necessity. In Matthew's account, Jesus has told Peter already, stay awake and pray lest you fall into temptation. This is a prayerless man. This is a sleepy man who has lost communion with God and he's carrying out his responsibilities in a carnal way. But there's another reason that Jesus didn't want Peter to do this. And this brings us to the last part of this passage, our last point here. And it's found in verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is the cup? Well, we're not left to imagine here. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup is the cup of God's judgment. Let me just give you one of many verses. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Oh, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, the cup of God's wrath. This is the cup that the Father had given the Son to drink. But it also reminds us that every person who will ever live will have one, will drink of one of two cups. Paul describes one cup, the cup of blessing, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. How can you drink from the cup of blessing? By embracing the one who drank from the cup of judgment for you as your substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. Why would he drink this horrific cup if there was any other way? Hebrews tells us, 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he drank from the cup. Hebrews 9 goes on and says, but as it is, he has appeared. Just as we celebrated at Christmas, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice for himself of himself. And in light of that marvelous grace, in light of his authority, we can trust him for all things. And obey him in all that he commands. As Isaac Watt puts it, as Adam and the musicians come forward, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And yes, it was at the hands of sinful men, but without negating their culpability, Jesus, by his own authority, laid down his life so that we might live. And so as the country lay preacher said to Spurgeon, look at him. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And for those of you that have not looked to him yet, we want to give you an opportunity We want to give you an opportunity to receive him 
as Savior and Lord. He drank the cup that you deserve so that you might drink the cup of blessing. But it doesn't happen by osmosis. You have to respond to him in repentance and faith. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. We'll have our pastors here at the end of the aisle as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.